MailChimp is an all-in-one marketing platform for growing businesses, empowering millions of customers around the world to launch, build, and grow their businesses with world-class marketing technology, award-winning customer support, and inspiring content. Eric Munz is MailChimp's CTO, responsible for the engineering teams that design, implement, and maintain MailChimp's products and infrastructure. He joins the show to take us through the engineering behind MailChimp's infrastructure. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are a CTO at MailChimp, and MailChimp is obviously giant at this point. You've been there for 12 <laughs> years, so you've seen a lot of the growth. It's quite a long time, and I, I guess, you know, I'd like to just start off by asking about First of all, MailChimp, obviously very resilient service. I've used it many years. I want to know about the biggest outage. I want to know about the biggest problem that you've encountered in your history of working on the platform. Wow. Yeah, what a question to start with. Thanks for being a user. appreciate that. would love to hear what you'd like us to get better at and work on. Always want to hear that for sure. And yeah, 12 years has been quite a long time. Uh, it's been a great journey. The biggest outage is what we affectionately call the SSD apocalypse. So we had moved to SSDs, I want to say in late 2010 or 2011, the times around then blur pretty heavily, as you can imagine, in super high growth areas. So it was either January of 2011 or January of 2012. I remember it specifically because it started on January 2nd. And my wedding anniversary is January 3rd. So I was intentionally trying to get some time off my infrastructure partner, a guy named Joe, is a very calm, very, very calm individual and really handles outages super well. He's one of those like uh, sort of like a duck people, right? Like his feet under the water might be really flying, but on the surface, he's always calm. And so he sent this one email that was like, hey, things are looking really rough. Something's going on with some of the database servers. We're losing some databases. I'm keeping up with it, but just letting y'all know some things are going on. And then his second message got a little more a little more fearful and was like, I don't know, something really weird is going on. We're losing a lot of machines. And then his final message was just like, oh, all hands on deck. I need help. We're losing machines at just an unbelievable clip. And our hard drives were just dying on our database machines. And, you know, we were redundant. We had, you know, primary pairs, the whole deal, tons of backups, all, all of that. But they were all dying all at the same time. And when all of your hard drives just die all at the same time. There's not a whole lot of like extra redundancy that's going to do much for you. And so we got in and this time at this point, we were in managed hosting at the time. So we were running on, on Rackspace and a, and a couple other managed hosts. And over the course of about 14 hours that day, we lost almost, I think it was around 150 SSDs all at about the same time. And so that was really rough. And I mean, we were seconds, minutes away where we made a final backup and had to stop the service. And that final backup completed just before the final bit of hard drives died. And what we ended up finding out, you know, days later after, you know, 72 hours of just nonstop constant work, trying to figure out what was going on with these machines, you know, and restoring service to our customers, of course, we did end up losing a couple of hours of data for a small portion of users. So not all of our users, but a small portion. And what we ended up finding out was that we thought we were on professional grade SSDs, but we were actually on commercial grade SSDs. 
And there was a firmware bug in them where after 5,000 hours of usage, they just turned off. Turned off and shut themselves down. And because we installed them at about all the same time, we lost all of those hard drives at about the same time. We call it the SSD apocalypse for quite obvious reasons. It was really gnarly. The team was maybe four or five total people at that time. So it was all hands on deck, a lot of work by a small group of people. The guy who I mentioned, Joe, has a pretty great catchphrase where he says he lost faith, he almost lost faith in computing over those couple of days. So we were glad to get an official answer on that, on what really was happening there. It was Crucial M4, I think was the name of the drive, if I remember right, from 11 or so years ago. That was a big outage. That was a, a really, really gnarly problem. Great anecdote there. So I guess that brings up an interesting question of picking storage mediums for the vast quantities of data that you have, or maybe just talking about vendor selection more broadly. You know, a company like MailChimp, you're 12 years old, so you, you're kind of pre-cloud, I believe. So maybe you can talk about vendor selection and how the scale of MailChimp affects your your vendor selection. Yeah, yeah. It's a really great journey. So when I started, we were in managed hosting and we moved around managed hosting providers. So, you know, we use shard approach where a master shard is, you know, if, if you log into your MailChimp account, you will see us and then a number.admin.mailchimp.com when you're going through the URLs. And that number is what we consider to be a, a main global user shard that holds about a million users. And we've got about 20 of those we have stood up today. When I started, we were on US1 and it was only US1. So when we first moved to US2, we said, hey, let's try out a new managed hosting provider and see how that goes. And so we started using those global shards to test out managed hosting providers until we found one that we were really happy with. It was called SoftLayer. And what we were most happy with with SoftLayer was they really understood that we just wanted access to managed hardware and we wanted them off of the machines and to let us provision and go and run with the machines from there. And that we were going to be spinning up and down and around machines really quickly. And so we could stand up a full shard of dozens of machines in 24 hours with software. And it was phenomenal. It was just phenomenal. The turnaround we got back then, they were super responsive. They did a really great job with their network, which was super important for us, obviously. You know, we saturate 10 gig lines outbound on our heavy email days back then. So we really needed some, we really needed to make sure we had a good partner on that. We started getting to the point where we were like their biggest customer or one of their biggest customers. And then you run into biggest customer problems, right? Where they don't see the type of cross shard connectivity or cross machine connectivity issues. And so we're running into things that are sort of new for them. And that started to get us to a point where we said, we believe it's time to take this into our own hands. So from there, we went to co-location and vendor selection around co-location is also quite important, right? You need to make sure that the folks running your colo environment really understand what you're doing for your business. And again, you don't want to be the biggest customer, right? So we picked a spot in Atlanta that houses you know, places like Twitter and Facebook and has a hallway long enough that you can almost see the curve of the earth in it as you're looking out. And we got really great support from them and, and really built out our own network and hired a phenomenal network engineering team. And then, you know, obviously on the procurement side, making sure we could go really fast and getting a vendor who deeply understood how MailChimp works. So we had a great relationship there. And honestly, 
you know, here we are today where everyone's in the cloud, right? And a lot of people are like, ooh, co-location, why? But there's some some things that are easily missed in that story where right around the time we moved from managed hosting to co-location, some nefarious actors on the internet were going around DDoSing companies at about our size. And they were hitting companies with really heavy amounts of bandwidth. And it was it was really, really rough. And if we were in managed hosting, they would have essentially just null-routed MailChimp. And we would have just been hard down for days, weeks. Some of our competitors were down for weeks at a time. And luckily, we were able to go behind a DDoS mitigation service and be okay. You know, maybe a fun, funny anecdote. The, the people doing the attacks were sending emails saying... You know, we just hit you with a test. We're going to hit you with something harder soon. And they hit us with something harder and say, you know, pay us X dollars and we will stop attacking you. And eventually they sent us an email and said, we're impressed. And, you know, we never responded to a single one of those emails. I wanted to respond, so are we. Can we just call it quits, please? But honestly, without having been in co-location and building that network and being able to really control our own environment, we would have been in really, really rough shape. Now I know the cloud providers are in a much stronger position and have better ability to manage all of that. So, you know, we are moving to GCP, to the Google Cloud platform. In vendor selection there, you know, we looked at which services we really want to adopt and not actually just manage VMs, but really run with cloud native services. And we really liked what Google had to offer. We make heavy use of BigQuery. We have six petabytes in BigQuery and are just super satisfied with the performance. Also, lastly, uh, in this monologue here on this, lastly, one of the big important things for us is that the Google team treats us like partners in a way that I just haven't had with a ton of vendors in this space before where, you know, they provide team members and office hours. And there's oftentimes people on our team don't know who's Google and who's MailChimp. And they really view our success as their success in a way that I think is truly unique when you're working with vendors. And so it's been it's been really great so far. Have there been any large initiatives to reduce costs that have led to any interesting stories? No, nothing that I'd say has really led to any super interesting stories. You know, obviously we've had cost reduction along the way, right? MailChimp before being acquired by Intuit was privately held and never taken investment. So we were profitable and margins mattered. So we had to really pay attention to what we were spending. And we were very efficient with our hardware use. And so in a lot of cases where you may have over-provisioned or not made quite the same use of hardware, we oftentimes had vendors expecting our usage to be at a certain level. And it was you know 10 or 20, 30 times that level because we just made really, really efficient decisions and efficient use of hardware and made sure there were no extras, but no like super fun stories that came up about, you know, maybe how we would build technology or anything to reduce cost. So today the platform is so big, I imagine monitoring is a challenge, an interesting challenge. Tell me how you surface and combat issues that come up across the platform. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Back in the days when I first started and when the aforementioned guy, Joe, first started, we didn't have a whole lot of monitoring. And we stood up our first knock wall with TVs that we just ran to the store and grabbed and Joe sort of mounted to an Ikea table. So we have progressed heavily from there. We are making heavy use of of monitoring tools and 
alerts. And I think really the big thing, you know, every, everyone sort of does sort of the same approach here, right? Where they look at uptime and availability and then, and then are also looking at reliability and then starting to look at where bottlenecks are coming in and where machines are slowing down or where alerts are coming. And, you know, I think the only sort of novel thing that teams can do is how they handle their on-call rotations and how they really look between, make sure there's a difference between, you know, what you might call a war room where there's like a real honest, there's now an active incident going on and something that's impacting users versus we're in warning stages, right? So we're in early alert stages and designating who folks are in the on-call rotation for a certain week or a certain day or a period of days and making sure that pre-warnings are coming in and that teams are taking those seriously and looking at those and seeing if they're red herrings or they're just, you know, spikes in certain types of usage or they are really pre-outage warnings and teams can start to get ahead of those and look and see into what's going on. Especially as we are sort of pre-cloud where we are at the moment in our migration to the cloud, we have statically over-provisioned hardware in our shards. So we have to make sure that as usage is really spiking, we get folks in to see what's going on and where those things might be coming from. And so really it's around getting folks to make sure that there's you know, social contracts around releasing. We deploy about 100 times a day, which is pretty good velocity for a team of about 400. And with all of that, we have to make sure that people take the framing of production ready very seriously. And so our framing around that is that everything that's deployed is both observable and observed, meaning that as you are working on your code and you're getting ready to deploy it, you make sure that you know how to observe how it's working and then that you will observe it as you are launching it and deploying it and then making sure that everyone else knows that you are deploying a thing, right? So if things start to spike and teams get called in and have to go and see whether this is pre-outage or just something going on, they have something they can cross-reference as to what changes were made and where exactly those changes were and how to get in touch with you along the way. Do you have any architectural decisions around monitoring data pipelines or log management data pipelines, I find that the monitoring infrastructure often leads to interesting data engineering questions. Yeah, from a data engineering standpoint, we are, and hopefully I'm answering your question right, but as you're monitoring and marshalling data around and monitoring where that data goes, it's important for teams to pay attention to the final source, right? So like where exactly the data is going and then where it's going to be accessed from there. We use BigQuery as our data warehouse. So we're making sure that teams know that there's a good data taxonomy and that things are tagged properly and that then all of the events of the system and everything that's happening is able to be stitched together and tell the same story so that when analytics are looking at it or teams, you know, engineering teams are looking at it and trying to figure out what's going on, that there's good taxonomy and good correlation between the, the events and the data that's being tossed around. Hopefully that's what you were getting at. If not, clarify and we can keep going. That's reasonable. I, I was just wondering about if there was any pipelines around, I don't know, like Prometheus monitoring, or if you use Datadog, or yeah, just wanting to get a window into how you do monitoring in more detail and how much of the data engineering you defer to underlying vendors. I see. Yeah. So we do use Prometheus and I don't know enough to walk you through exactly how it's configured. 
That's okay. Let's zoom out this game. You know, email delivery is obviously core to your business. And if your email delivery is suffering from, you know, things being somehow marked as spam or there's a variety of ways that the fuzzy nature of what is spam and what is not spam can really bite you. Can you tell me about the team structure or the infrastructure you've put around email delivery? Yeah, for sure. So it's a dark art. I don't know how much you've really dug into email delivery. It is essentially a dark art and it's because every ISP is different and there's no there's no set of standards, right? There's no like do this, follow this and and your email delivery will be great. There's a few standards and there's a couple standard bodies, but every ISP sort of chooses how they how they detect spam and how they monitor and manage and how they or how they do or do not communicate back to ESPs. So we have an email delivery team that's engineers and system analysts and then work with a bunch of folks in customer service and in other orgs across the company, really monitoring and watching this. And again, heavily monitored. We have built our own our own MTA. So MTA stands for Mail Transfer Agent. It is the thing that does the sort of final bits of sending and receiving email out on the internet. And so email sending reputation really starts with IPs, with your IP addresses. So, you know, if you're going to send 100,000 emails and you're going to send, say, 30,000 of those to to a Hotmail or, or Outlook and 50,000 of those to Gmail, you need to make sure that those IP addresses are things that those ISPs actually understand. So there's a whole process of managing and monitoring those IP addresses. And then, you know, if you are a large enough email sender, so you come to MailChimp and you're like, look, I'm going to send hundreds of thousands to millions of email on a regular schedule, you will get a dedicated IP address. So the email that goes out for that user is really specific to that user. And we've automated the management and proliferation and handling of, of all of that. If otherwise you will be on a shared IP address. So, you know, couple of thousand of your closest MailChimp friends will be sending email together. And so the part of that that is really important for an ESP to manage that I think we do extraordinarily well is if you're on a shared IP address, well, one person can literally ruin the fun for all of the others, right? So you need to be really careful about what you allow to go out. And it's really interesting and gets really difficult because, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago, or even longer, it was really all about content. But, you know, the downside is that, unfortunately, bad actors on the internet know how to build really great content. And so, nefarious content tends to look very, very similar to legitimate marketing content. And so, really managing it from a content standpoint isn't going to get you all the way there. It'll it'll get you a start, but not all the way there. What you have to monitor is behavior. You know, things like time it took to upload the content, to send the content, time it took to manage the contacts and where the contacts are coming from and all of that. And then also knowing a lot about the email addresses. So MailChimp has records on over four and a half billion email addresses, unique email addresses. That doesn't, of course, correspond to four and a half unique individuals or four and a half billion unique individuals. But going back through MailChimp's history, we can see all of the things that have happened with all those email addresses, whether they're bouncing, whether they're actually being received, when they're being received, how they're being interacted with, all of those things. And so it's easy for us to do some data science modeling around 
how all of that works and then help us make really great decisions for the rest of the environment. And it's a team that, you know, doesn't get a whole lot of attention because it's, it's just sort of considered table stakes, right, for ESPs. But I am extraordinarily proud of the work this very small team does. There are only about 10 engineers. And managing all of that and monitoring it and watching it all day, every day is just, it's a lot of work because the rules change all the time. And the rules are things that you basically just have to reverse engineer because an ISP is not going to tell you this is how we detect spam because then of course the spammers will know how to get around it. So it's a lot of work and it's really important. And I think it's a huge differentiator for MailChimp. Do you guys run your own email servers? Yeah. Yeah. So our own MTAs. Yeah. So we don't for like inbound, right. Or for, and we don't provide people with, you know, you can't get like a Jeffrey Meyerson at MailChimp.com email address, right? So we're not an ISP, but we do manage our own MTAs, our own mail transfer agents that, that handle all of the outbound and, you know, feedback loop processing and do some inbound processing for things like, oh, what's it called? Email Beamer and inbound email processing for our transactional service. What's the DevOps setup for managing email servers? For managing email servers specifically, it is mostly infrastructure. So when you ask DevOps setup, it is in our co-located environment. And right now that's a thing that would be pretty difficult to move to the cloud because you know we're managing tens of thousands of IP addresses and they need to go specifically to pieces of hardware, right? So making sure a cloud provider is doing that right is going to be a little bit difficult. So managed in co-location, we've got a bunch of tools around managing that hardware. And there's not a whole lot of, on the actual MTA itself, there's not a whole lot of like day-to-day code deploys. There's a system that sits above that that manages all of those IP addresses and manages all of the communication back between MailChimp and our transactional platform and those MTAs and has all the agents running and is doing all of the mail coordination. And that is really just a typical sort of deployed software platform, right? It's generally software engineered. We are actually a LAMP stack. So it's running, you know, PHP and MySQL and all of that and is just generally deployed like a standard software project. Can you give me an overview of the front end infrastructure? I'm guessing you're on React at this point, but maybe you could just talk through what front-end engineering at MailChimp looks like and what your input is on that side of things. Yeah, for sure. So we are mostly on React. We have been moving to React from Dojo, which we adopted fully probably in 2012 or something. And so the older version of our editor is fully built on Dojo. You know, we built a bunch of tools around it to make it work better for us. So maybe we called it Mojo because it's MailChimp Dojo. But we are in the process of finishing migrating from Dojo to React. And yeah, that stack is, you know, just sort of a, a, a standard React stack, building custom components and making sure that the front end teams can really fly around. We've got some just phenomenal front-end engineers who did some really great work to make our antiquated framework work as a single-page app so that we can marshal requests around in, in ways that are going to really work cleanly for a React environment. So, you know, that's that's at a high level really where we are today. We have a PHP framework that we use called Avesta that's homegrown and has been really adopted and adjusted lately to sort of be modernized and work 
cleanly with React. And so, yeah, that's where we are. Can you walk me through the life of an email blast being sent on MailChimp? Kind of the how scheduling works and yeah, maybe, you know, you could put it in the context of the larger infrastructure. And, you know, I mean, I assume you have lots of email blasts that get scheduled throughout the day, how those get executed and queued up. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll start high level and you can ask me to dig in more deeply if you want. So Really at the highest level, MailChimp has two things that it's doing a ton of. It has application servers that are working with, you know, HTTP requests. So customers in the product working, getting things done, you know, clicking through the UI and doing all the things. And then also processing events that are happening with the emails and other materials that we've got out on the internet, right? So with our web pages or our beacons that are on web pages or any of that. So a lot of people think about MailChimp as like an email platform and that like sending the email is the big piece. Sending the email is the start and then the analytics journey is really what MailChimp's platform is doing. And so a lot of that is ingesting HTTP requests from, you know, emails or websites or beacons and then running through the event-driven aspect of all of what happens from there, right? So we kick off an automation, we tick up a reporting element, all of those things. So that's all basically front-end HTTP. And then the majority of the work really happening is background jobs, right? So we either ingest something or a user takes some action, and then we go to a scheduler and we say, hey, schedule this job to be run. And then we've got you know, job processors on the back end picking those jobs up and then running them, right? And that's what's really happening all day, every day, the vast majority of what our compute is responsible for. So email sending, obviously, is one of those background jobs. So someone says, you know, schedule an email for 5 p.m. It's going to wake up a little bit before 5 p.m. and get started processing and get started working on stitching together all of the elements for that email, right? Because with email customization, it's not create one payload and then just send it a whole bunch of times. It's create one payload that's customizable and then gets customizable however many millions of times or you know anywhere from one to many millions of times for all of the recipients. So that job gets picked up, it starts building a ton of payloads and then marshalling those payloads out to the aforementioned MTA instances, which then route it to the right machine based on IP and all of those things and then get it sent out through the internet. So that's a very high level sort of view of how it all comes together. Happy to dig into any of those specific components if you want more info. Maybe you could talk about the failure modes that can occur across that series of steps. Yeah, lots of them. Well, in 2011, SSDs could die. But yeah, so failure modes across those steps. And again, I'll, I'll say like, MailChimp, obviously, extremely resilient. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I have not had a failed email. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Knock on wood. Yeah. You know, we send, you know, a billion a day. So not a lot of failures happening. But when they do happen, you know, one of the things we have to make sure that we do is we have to be really careful about sanitizing the content that our users can provide. And so a big failure mode could be that you know, we get some content that is unable to be parsed or unable to be dealt with and stitched together properly. 
that happens extremely rarely these days. It was more prevalent 12 years ago before time is when I had started. You know, other modes are like, you know, we're running on hardware that we own and run. So obviously there's some hardware failures. We do rely pretty heavily on third parties as well. So those background servers might be talking to third-party services to get content for emails. And if those servers are down or those servers are slow or experiencing high latency, those are things that can start to clog the pipes and make things a little difficult to deal with. So we've got some built-in monitoring and some built-in code that will just sort of pause jobs that they know are relying on third parties or hit eject switches. One interesting failure mode, not specifically about sending email, is that we deliver webhooks. So if you have your own service and you want to be notified of activity happening within MailChimp, either with your subscribers on your list or with reports or with emails that are going out, we will send you webhooks notifying you that those events have happened. And a really common failure mode is that someone has a service that's not ready to ingest millions of requests, but then they take an action in MailChimp that is going to then send out millions of webhooks. And they actually sort of DOS themselves with their MailChimp account. So they might like stand up a webhook and have a web server that's not super highly provisioned and then upload a list of, you know, two and a half million contacts maybe. And it's configured to send a webhook for every single new subscriber added to the system, which then queues up a ton of background jobs. And then we fire it off to those systems and then those systems collapse. And so we have to be pretty careful about that and make sure that when that happens, we don't ruin the fun for everyone as part of the system. It's not something that's super obvious. Another thing that came up, a failure mode is, and this is actually one of you asked for outages. This wasn't a huge outage, but it was an interesting one. Around that same time, probably 2011, maybe 2012, we just had a random one day. Some of our app servers were just totally being consumed with requests and falling over. And we looked at it. They were all the same request. And a user had accidentally found a way to set up a campaign type where the content for the campaign is retrieved from an external URL and then made that URL the MailChimp campaign itself somehow. And so we just had recursion error. <laughs> we were just requesting ourselves over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so that was a fun one to find and try to figure out what in the heck was going on and protect ourselves from that type of outage happening, right? So dear nefarious actors who may be listening to this podcast, we've already covered that. Please don't try to attack us with it. Well, you can, but it won't go anywhere. What about detection of bad actors on MailChimp, either people that are you know, using it to sell illegal items or whatever, do all kinds of illicit things that you can do over email. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole thing, right? Because we're a freemium platform and we allow completely free users with up to 2000 subscribers on their list to make very high use of our platform. We have to make sure that we are protected from the bad actors. So again, we have an abuse prevention team that's super great and also super small, roughly, you know, less than 10. And they're just a super phenomenal team. We've got some automated systems that can do content detection and content scanning. We also, you know, again, have to really look very heavily at behaviors and patterns. And there's enough services that, you know, you can run through bot detection and bot awareness and all of that. So that'll cut out the bots, but then finding the bad people 
you know, it's why if you've used, you know, you said you've used MailChimp, it's why you have to do things like verify your domain. So, you know, 12 years ago, before we did that, people would come in and set up a MailChimp account with wellsfargo.com as their domain and then send a Wells Fargo email to someone and basically fish them to click a link and go out and connect to their Wells Fargo account. So we have to take all of that extremely seriously and make sure that our trust and safety procedures are really well thought out and really well considered. And, you know, I don't really like using, you know, sort of violent metaphors, but it is an arms race. So we bob, they weave, and we just keep going back and forth. And our phenomenal team is always looking at it and always on the lookout for what's going on and able to make really quick adjustments. So that's sort of our, one of our engineering mantras, right, is to be rapid, flexible, and reliable. So from a rapid standpoint, we need to be able to see what's happening, make changes really quickly, get them deployed really quickly, see how that's going, and then keep adjusting from there. And it's worked out really well. So that and we have just an unbelievable huge dearth of data that we can lean on. And we have great data scientists that help us do propensity modeling and help us do prediction of bad behavior based on all of those activities and, you know, sort of features and attributes of users as they come in. So it gives us a bit of pre-defense. Can you tell me more about how the teams across MailChimp are structured? Maybe you can walk me through some of the division of labor and management strategy. So how the teams are divided. So at the highest level, we have product engineering, we have infrastructure engineering, we have data services. So data services manages the data pipelines, right? So marshalling all the data from its source, be it our MySQL databases or Google Analytics or wherever else to the data warehouse, so to BigQuery, and then adding governance on top of that, and then providing analytics tools for the rest of the org. They also do some ML inch work for our data science team. I also have enterprise IT, and there's a really small architecture team. And so across that, and then we have department operations. So with you know 450 people, we need to make sure we're operating quite well. So our PMO org and folks that help with all hands and all of that. So the main teams in there, right? when it comes to engineering discipline is the product engineering team, infrastructure, architecture, and data services. And so we have a chief architect and that's the entirety of the architecture team. And then what we do is use a distributed model where as we break into squads and squads focus on areas of the product, there's a lead engineer in those squads and that lead engineer joins a community of architects. So they're not actually labeled architects. They do architecture work together. And so they will architect and document and design the work they're working on, bring it together with the community of lead engineers, help make decisions, sign off on those decisions, and then go from there. And so what we like about that model is that it provides people who may not have like the most senior title at all times be able to participate in that process. And so it gives our team lots of exposure and lots of growth and really keeps folks together. And then that way there's sort of not just like one anointed architect who's running around making all the decisions. It's also the people who are implementing the work that are responsible for that. And then on the product engineering side, 
we take the approach of mostly generalists. So our stack is common. We're not polyglot. I'm a huge believer in monoglot environments so that there's elasticity across teams. So, you know, people do specialize a little bit between the back end and the front end, but people do a lot of full stack work as well. The specialization starts to come in for the areas of the product that you've spent the most of time on. So, you know, you might be someone who's worked on reporting or list forms, and that's really where you stick around for a while. But if you need to help someone on campaign editing for whatever reason, it's all in the same stack. You can jump in quickly. It's just as easy to deploy as anything else you've been working on. It's easy to understand the code base. It all works the same. You know, it's all written in the same language, all of those things. So the product engineering team is probably about two-thirds of the org, and it's a large team of generalists who do cross-functional work in squads with design and product management and all of those teams. Then on the infrastructure side, we specialize much more heavily. So there's a security team, you know, doing AppSec, pen testing, you know, endpoint security, all of that. And they are pretty specialized on security. And then same thing, you know, sort of all the way down the stack, right? So we have folks who go to data centers and work on that and manage the data center infrastructure, do system administration and manage our puppet configs, all of those things. And they are really specialized within their areas, including email delivery as part of our infrastructure team. So on that side, we've got a lot of specialization. And then within data services, it's sort of like an infrastructure team from that standpoint, lots of specialization around that. So that's generally how we're structured. You know, Then you could sort of break the product apart and into swaths of, of what the product does. And that's how we squad up around what teams are working on. And then, you know, from a management philosophy, starting at the highest level, we have an engineering mission statement that is, we give marketers production-ready software designed to help them grow, and we succeed through togetherness, momentum, and pragmatism. So the four words that really pop out of that are production-ready, togetherness, momentum, and pragmatism. And that's really the core of how everything is run. Our engineering levels reflect those four terms. So if you're you know, looking to move from a senior engineer to a staff engineer, you're generally examined across those things, as well as what we call focus areas, which are things like industry impact, like public speaking or team mentorship. But that's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure, so you don't have to do public speaking, but you have to do something that makes, that makes the, the team or the environment better. So that's our general philosophy. We also really believe heavily that individual contributors are leaders, just like managers are leaders. And so the leadership tracks that go up across each of those roles stay in parallel. And we are really cautious about and really invested in because it shouldn't be the case that to make more money or get more autonomy or authority or mastery in your craft that you have to go into the management route. People who, who really want to manage and want to, to make sure that they are taking care of the business and employees together really should go into management. And folks who don't really want to do that and want to specialize and continue to lead and mentor and help grow engineers, but focus on you know hands-on keyboard coding and really honing that craft should stay the IC route and still make great money and have great careers. So that's at a high level. Again, happy to dig into any of that. Well, as we begin to wind down, maybe you could talk about your engineering responsibilities for the near future. Any replatforming efforts or other big engineering efforts you're working on? As you know, we were acquired by Intuit. And big vision there is that MailChimp and QuickBooks together 
are just really amazing partners for what we can do for small businesses. I wish I could compare it to other acquisitions. It's the first one I've ever successfully been a part of. But when I think about it, it's it's hard to find an acquisition where we have two companies that view customers in such a really similar way, but have very little product overlap. So we just sort of seamlessly tie up to each other. There's no like, which part of whose product are we going to shut down and keep the winner's version of? It's really just how do we meet right in the middle and combine and unite and provide a ton of power for small business. So obviously one of the big things is connecting to Intuit and connecting to QuickBooks specifically and getting our data flowing between the two products and starting to make really amazing recommendations across what you can do if you're an existing QuickBooks customer who's using MailChimp to do some marketing and help grow your business or your vice versa, or you're new to both platforms and you want to come in and figure out how you're you know, invoicing and management of that side of your business can really tie into your marketing and help grow your business. So that's super exciting and something we're undertaking now. Another big thing, you know, we're in the ending stages of sort of liberating our core data architecture from the email address. So as you can imagine, starting as an email marketing platform, if you looked at, you know, an ER diagram, it would just be like email and then a big spider out from there. And so we have sort of servicized our approach to managing audience members for our customers and being able to manage customers who don't have an email address, right? So that we can have folks who just SMS with their customers or just view website visitors or people who are starting the checkout process for a a shopping cart, but don't yet have an email address and we can figure out how to connect to them. So that's a pretty big replatforming and undertaking. And then obviously, as I mentioned, we're moving to the Google Cloud. So, you know, the containerization of things and making sure that we're properly adopting DCP services and making sure the system is, is working around that and that we've got our deployment mechanism working well and we're able to maintain our velocity across teams with that as a really big undertaking. So those are the big exciting things we've been working on, as well as, as you asked, on the front-end platform, landing the React plane. So really finishing the move from Dojo to React. And as I noted, I don't like polyglot environments. So if we've got both Dojo and React code out there, I'm not really comfortable. And so as soon as we are 100% React, then we'll be better. And of course, teams will have higher velocity. Awesome. Well, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.